0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies. My name is Kelly McFall, and I'm your host. Every month or so, I interview the author of a new or recent book in Genocide Studies. Today, I'll be interviewing Donald Bloxham, author of the book, The Final Solution, A Genocide, published by Oxford University Press. The book is a remarkable attempt to synthesize what we now know about the Holocaust and its place in European and global history. Every section is full of insight and analysis. He's just as interesting and synthetic in the interview, which I think you'll enjoy quite a bit. So, without further introduction, here it is. Hi, Donald. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Very pleased to be here. Wonderful. Excited to have you. For our listeners today, I'm interviewing Donald Bloxham, author of the recent book, The Final Solution, A Genocide, published by Oxford University Press. It's an important book, a book that has gotten a lot of attention, uh, and deservedly so. It's analytical rather than narrative. Its arguments are careful... And always attentive to nuance and complexity. Whether you agree completely with the interpretations, you've got to admire the depth of the research and the argument in the book. So Donald, why don't we just start by uh, asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got uh, interested in academics and interested in the study of genocide.
1: I I really uh, fell into the profession. uh, That is, I had a desire to to do something academic and something related to genocide almost directly as a result of um, of, a, of, a, of a third year final year um, undergraduate uh, special subject as we called it in those days a year long course um, my undergraduate years which was on the Holocaust um, so the subject matter was there from early on but it was actually the teacher that that, that really inspired me as I guess is often the case um, the guy who taught the course was a medievalist uh, I think he taught the first sort of full full length you know proper dedicated course on the Holocaust in the whole of the UK, a medievalist by the name of Colin Richmond. This was at Keele University uh, in, the, in the British Midlands. And um, it, was this, it was his teaching style, actually, as much as the subject. I mean, I really took the course because he was teaching it rather than because of the subject. But then he got me into the subject because of his, of his teaching style. And I, I think I rather admired him and in some ways wanted to emulate him. And, and 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 was looking for a research topic which he suggested it turned out to be the the topic of my first book on on the Nuremberg trials um uh, but I went with it not because I had any <laughs> <or> <laughs> any profound insight as to how this would go or indeed any sort of really deep understanding of anything but because it suggested it, because it sounded interesting and you know there was a there was something in the air at that time too it's difficult to establish a sort of precise causal relationship but it's I think significant, you know, that final year study was in the year 1993 to 94. You know, this was the, you know, towards the end of that, of the, of the academic year, we had the genocide in Rwanda. Um, you know, the ac- academic year ended in, in May of, um, of, of 94. Um, it was the year of the release of, of Schindler's List. And it came out in 93, didn't it? But during that academic year, it came out, um, I think also if memory serves, um, well, in fact, I am sure we at least had the establishment or or, uh, the discussions about establishing and then the establishment of the first international criminal tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And all these things were kind of going around and I think kind of gave me a sense that the the, um, subject itself was, you know, had had all sorts of kind of current uh, ramifications. Like, you know, I, I wouldn't suggest I had any idea of drawing together dots at that point at all but you know one one was aware of all this sort of stuff when that was combined with a kind of rather charismatic teaching style which was all about making things some, somehow contemporarily relevant i mean this guy also taught on as well as teaching courses on the world of thomas More and the medieval navy <laughs> he taught on vietnam and he taught on the holocaust you know just a whole bunch of kind of uh, he's very good at making things contemporarily relevant and that so it, it's that kind of collection of stuff that ended up with me going down the research route really as as um on a, on a, on a topic that someone else had had a hand in suggesting and that i sort of fleshed out during my doctoral years um and you know and finally pub- published and i suppose it's because i published that that i got the um the way into the way into a job so as you all know the british system is obsessed with publishing things and um and thankfully i managed to managed to actually do some publishing and and, and then got a a job offer on the way. I did all manner of convoluted things in the, in the in the interim. I worked for a charity for a couple of years. A charity called the um, Holocaust Educational Trust,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I was a research director there and trying to put out some sort of scholarly papers edited by the trust and by you know respectable academics. <laughs> and and uh, uh, you know, and, and the and that gave me some experience in what we fondly call the real world. And uh, but but but. You know, increasingly, the more the more I did in the real world, the more I wished for the safety of academia and, 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 and in virtue of you know, publishing my thesis turned first monograph. I, this was a, w- a way into the job, which I you know still hold at Edinburgh.
0: Yeah, I'm I remember that time because I was in grad school at that time and I ended up writing a dissertation on Habsburg history and very much shaped by the events in Yugoslavia. And I think we often underestimate as historians how much the contemporary world actually affects what we 're interested in at the time, so how did you move from nuremberg to the studies of genocide that you 've done well
1: the, the, the nuremberg book was uh, was a and again this is you know partly serendipitous partly partly well hopefully partly not um, the nuremberg book was 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 really about the, the the way in which nuremberg and other trials of that era had had I suppose, represented uh, Nazi criminality, particularly represented the Holocaust in the way in which that had uh, shaped contemporary or then contemporary or contemporaneous uh, conception of Nazi criminality and, and uh, as it were, the uses to which that legal memory had been put in, in uh, the origins and sort of function of a particular representation of the Holocaust at a crucial time in, in modern European history. Um, so all of this time I was, I was reading on the Holocaust specifically, even though I was, actually talking about its representation and, and I was very interested in, in issues like how um, war crimes trials interact with, uh, with, with publics and with states and you know to what extent they serve edu- re-educative functions to what extent they fulfill you know these grand didactic and sort of reforming re-educative functions which are, which, which are often ascribed to them. Um, so I was interested at in that, in the, the level of the sort of procedure of the trials, but also at the representational level, and, and naturally still interested very much in the Holocaust because that was indirectly the main subject of, of the book. And um, reading, as I was then, a lot on the Holocaust, I, I, was, I was struck by the um, by the way in which the Armenian uh, genocide kept sort of coming in. Through the side door if you like insofar as that there was much a reference to other genocides in in, in the Holocaust literature of the time it tended to be the Armenians as as a sort of either as a sort of comparator or something or as something that was being distinguished against the Holocaust in any case it was there and one partly by Armenian historians trying to I think claim a closer identity than perhaps is warranted between the two events in in order to um, you know to further the course of Armenian genocide recognition um, but there was also, you know, some, some sense that these were interestingly comparable events. And I, and I, and I, I became interested in the, in the way in which the Armenian Genocide had not, um, had not, had not, had not been, been recognised, I suppose, but has not in a sense risen to any kind of prominence. And it's funny, these days, and while looking at other genocides, one sees that the Armenian Genocide does have a, a significant relative prominence, as it were, just lower than the Holocaust's prominence. But at that mm-hmm. time, I was... Um, I, I think I was very interested in, in um, thinking comparatively about this other case, which which seemed to keep cropping up. Um, similarities and, and you know, very obvious differences too, but also interested in the process of, sort of memory construction, particularly as as, as regards the sort of political functions of, of, of memory in the Armenian case too. And that led me, I think, onto the, the general questions of um, um, international attitudes towards Armenian genocide recognition. And then the deeper questions of, you know, to what extent the interaction between the outside world and the Republic of Turkey was uh, interestingly prefigured in the, in the sort of at the time of the genocide itself. And then interestingly in the, in in the sort of prehistory of the genocide, how as it were that that dynamic between Turkey or the Ottoman empire and um, and the outside world had in some sense actually um, helped contribute to the dynamic that culminated in genocide. And so there was this interesting sort of question, sort of power, the replication of certain power um, relations over time and through all sorts of different contexts. Um, so, you know, that's how I came from the Holocaust. Uh, you know, I came to the Holocaust through the Nuremberg trial mm-hmm. somehow and then moved out from the Holocaust to the Armenian genocide. And, and that was the subject of my, of my second book.
0: And, and how did you, so, so how did you then come back to the Holocaust from that? Why this book?
1: Well, uh, well, I, 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 I picked, um, and all would kept reading on the Holocaust. In that sense, it's been with me, you know, ever since, um, ever since the start of my academic career. I mean, my my um, mm-hmm. from my final year as an undergraduate through to the present, and that's is now, I think, slightly more than half of my life. Um, and that's um, that's a long time to have. To, to to be dealing with this, but I I I, I so it never the Holocaust never really went away. I think what what um what I wanted to do with uh, oh coming back I mean, I, I'd also co-authored a book with my actual my, 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 my former doctoral Super, doctoral supervisor Tony Kushner um called the Holocaust Critical Historical Approaches in which would try to take some of the interesting aspects of recent Holocaust historiography and, and see what see what we could do with them and see what we, areas they thought they covered and what areas were left. Un- insufficiently examined, and so on. It was a short book, but we were. Well, I wanted to build on some of the insights of that, which was, in a sense, I th- the, the the philosophy behind that writing that book was. To um, see, we've got this a lot of sort of comparative literature out there in the world of genocide studies at the moment, um, and the Holocaust has got a sort of an interesting and curious place in this literature. Now, at one point, there's a kind of you know almost an archetypal example of genocide. Um, you know, for all sorts of for all sorts of very good reasons. I mean, not least because of the vast historiography around it. It also meant that it was not just a historical archetype, but almost a historiographical archetype. You know, you, the Holocaust provided you with a very great amount of detail on about genocide processes and stuff. And some of the questions that one could borrow from that were very useful in examining other genocides. And my thought in writing this book was, you know, to what extent can we turn that light around and say, okay, the Holocaust has actually been quite useful and in some ways, it helped, in some ways, a hindrance because of its difference and so on uh, to illuminating other genocides. But to what extent can we actually turn that around and say, you know, has genocide studies now reached the sort of level of maturity where we can raise some of the questions that come from that and ask questions back onto the Holocaust? So in a sense, it was an attempt to kind of illuminate, you know, create a, a two-way illumination where hitherto there had probably only been a one-way illumination. Um, and, and, and the Armenian, well, we um, perhaps talked later on about the precise content of the book uh, I, I was less interested, I think, in doing what had hitherto been done in the literature, which was a sort of, what I call a kind of apples and oranges comparative approach, where you you, know, you have a, traditionally you'll have a sort of it a comparative genocide, you'll have one chapter on the Armenian genocide, one on mm-hmm. the Holocaust, one on genocide, and sort of case by case, and then you sort of you say, well, here's an apple, here's an orange, here's a banana, yes, we've got some fruit. Um, and you know, and you know, clearly there's a common denominator of fruithood there, but wondered how how far really, how far that really got us um I mean clearly it's served uh, this sort of humanistic urge to compare and understand phenomena that were somehow related across time and place but I was more interested i think in in the process of of contextualization than straightforward comparison I mean, but by that i mean um um Seeing the extent to which the Armenian genocide and a bunch of other stuff, maybe not reaching that level of outright genocide, but you know, sub-genocidal massacres and ethnic mm-hmm. somehow um, mm-hmm. form part of the picture that the Holocaust also formed part of. Uh, in that sense, how you might sort of tie cases together as parts of broader kind of I don't know regional or national or even global processes, mm-hmm. um, but think of think of them as somehow. Causally related, or you know, having having some sort of connections, you know, over and above just you know the sort of phenomenal sim- similarities of them. So it was an attempt to sort of move beyond, you know, what I think that's an orthodox comparative approach to something more contextual. I mean, we can perhaps elaborate on that later. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and, and let's move into the content. But but before I get to the specific content, uh, this really is an analytical book, and yet right toward the beginning of the book, you've got this fantastic little. Chapter or section uh, where you look at primary documents, uh, several primary documents, some of them very well known, some of them not very well known uh, i 'm I'm interested in why you chose to start the book that way um, and and how you selected those images
1: yeah alas, this was uh this was a, a publisher's requirement. It, appear, it appeared in a, in a series called, called Oxford histories. And, uh, huh. we were obliged to have, I mean, they, obviously they didn't dictate the particular source, uh, mm-hmm. sorts or or, 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 you know, the documents, but, uh, they did dictate that we have a, these documents there. I think had they not done that, I probably wouldn't have had it. So, I, um, it was only by virtue of the, of the stipulation that I, that I, that I, I set my mind to thinking about these things. Um, yeah, it was precisely, well, you, you hint at some of the reasons, you know, the idea that some of these were very well known and some of these were not so well known. Some of these, um, they should, I suppose that the, the idea of choosing the documents was um, to, 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 to locate documents that have been held or could be argued to sort of represent something about the essence of the process, problematize mm-hmm. any idea of an essence of a process, because one of the whole points of the book, I suppose, is to think about genocides as processes. Uh, which is not as it were to I hope at least not a kind of anti-intellectual point. It's a a point about thinking about how stuff evolves, not just in context, but across time. And in that sense, you know, any, any, any kind of claim of which we've had plenty in the field of Holocaust and genocide studies to, to identify some sort of essential kind of quality, you know, this is the essential causal element, or this is the essential sort of feature or nature of these events. I wanted to problematize and, um, so some of those documents served that purpose very well, and then you know they're, and they're, but this this tendency is, is is common to a lot of genocides. The document I produced on the art from the Armenian genocide was this um, effectively a railway timetable of deportees mm-hmm. compiled by an american uh, diplomat and uh, just it's so striking isn 't it you know to, when one reads you know reads that people are being deported from A to b you know as part of a genocidal process and you know, ostensibly very very striking uh, in, well, mm-hmm. striking obvious chords with the historiography of the Holocaust in a sense I wouldn't want to, at all want to suggest that it was a red herring in terms of the Armenian genocide because it was part of it and yet it was just an, an illustration of how when one takes certain documentary approaches one can get a very distinct impression of um, the, another of the document was uh, documents was the famous um, uh, Himmler speech from Poland mm-hmm. uh, in, in late 1943 and that's and trying to sort of get people to think about that from a slightly new angle as well, um, which was, you know, I suppose you know, controversial in some ways, but 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 nevertheless, you know, my, my aim was 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 to, it is to and remains to try and get people to think about these things in a, in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I was I was struck by the um, Romanian advertisement yeah. uh, from 1923. And and that maybe brings us to this this first section of the book, because like many studies, of the Holocaust, you really start well before the Holocaust begins. And so and as I said in the pre-interview, I'm just going to kind of steal one of your questions since it was so elegant. Uh, Why do you think Europe was such a volatile place in the early 20th century?
1: Well, I I think Europe had been exporting violence for a long time. Um, yeah, from maybe, well, I suppose it depends where one looks in Europe. And certainly, from the late nineteenth century, if one looked to the, the sort of south southeast of the continent, one could have seen signs of what might think it was a, a, a nascent, burgeoning, spreading violence related related to issues of state formation, state aggrandisement, state consolidation. Um, I mean, there are also there there are some simple explanations, and there are some and some more complex explanations. But geopolitical, um, the geopolitical explanations, one well, I put a great deal of store by, but of course that doesn't you know the, the idea of you know a, a Europe whose nation states are in sort of up close personal uh, competition, and hitherto their competition has been largely exported to the outside you know, the outside world via imperialism and. Um, a propensity for violence as part of that process of expansion um, and, um, um, you know, well, <laughs> land theft, um, imperial consolidation, uh, but also the you know, simple integration of large parts of the world into a sort of European-dominated world system. Now, you know, violence was inherent in all of that, uh, but, and it always captured sort of one remove from a Europe that, to some degree, amongst its great powers, the Ottoman Empire excluded. Um, had a sort of shared civilizational vision, or a shared sort of civilizational conception, uh, and, and, and part of the story of the twentieth or the early twentieth century is the collapse of that shared vision, uh, as this sort of this inter interstate, also integrate power um, competition, sort of comes home to the continent itself, as it as it were, the continent implodes under its own. Uh, developmental um, and ideological pressures and and cultural pressures too, of course. you know this. The, the, all of those kind of families, the senses of a, a continent um, in a state of degeneration. Um, all of the sort of fears brought on by industrialization, urbanization, secularization, the sort of the sense of identities in flux, traditional verities and values under threat. You know, the search for culprits that scapegoats people to blame for the insecurities of life and, and indeed for um, national fortunes and national decline. All of these becoming you know, particularly salient in that, in that in that atmosphere of heightened competition. The most obvious expression of which is is the First World War, but but other expressions of which I think you know depending on which part of Europe you look at had been obvious from, from earlier than that. And you know, I make a certain amount of play of the so-called Eastern Crisis of 1875 to eight down in the Balkans um, effectively as the vast majority of the remnant of, of the European part of the Ottoman Empire is torn away from from, from the Ottoman Empire in, in, in those years of war and, um, and ethnic cleansing yeah. and um, I think it's very, you know, it, it, this in a sense is one of the sort of the, the ways in which I tied the later Armenian experience to the Holocaust mm-hmm. too, you know, but via this sort of paradigm of the Ottoman Empire as, as, uh, in many senses the weakest and most vulnerable of the in the Europe, in the broader European great power system, the most susceptible to fragmentation under the forces of modernization, um, economic, uh, industrial modernity, owing to its relative economic and um, uh, uh, in industrial, let's say, backwardness and in inverted commas, um, it's no accident that's the first em- first of the you know, of the European land empires, really, to feel that the strain of uh, modern developments from the late nineteenth century onwards, and. No accident. That's where we see the, the greatest uh, intergroup violence of the late 19th century, and in a sense, part of that pattern is replicated as we see the other large empires, the Romanov and Habsburg, fragmenting under the impact of the First World War itself, and uh, and then reconfiguring into independent nation states in the Habsburg case, and this sort of modern version of the Russian Empire in the in the in the, in the um, Bolshevik case. Um, yeah, so it's that that's. It's it's that 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 uh, that coalescence of the, the cultural, the, the economic, the competitive, and all of which are lead to, and then are further exacerbated by the the crisis of the First World War itself. That, um, that you know, I think, and that's in, in in many ways, that's a fairly traditional explanation. I suppose my 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 contribution to it really was to, was to chart the course of anti-civilian violence from the Balkans upwards as a sort of you know prior trajectory to, to, to all of that.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that stands out in in, in your account is, is the way in which minorities suffered, or at least were targeted as agents or reasons for the disintegration of these imperial states. Um, how is it that Jews in particular, but minorities in general, end up, what, what, what kind of legacies are there from the stigmatization and, and the fear of these minorities from this period?
1: Uh, always in these questions, I think, there is just a, a, a special, and I think, let's say, Christian civilizational aspect to the stigmatization of Jews generally. So there's always, I think, there's, there is always that, rather special aspects to it, which is overlaying with many experiences which are common to stigmatisation of other minorities. But nevertheless, that's sort of, well, I suppose, ultimately, the sort of the deicide um, stigma, the, you know, this terrible uh, canard, um, which is, uh, you know, I think, you know, so many, so many of the anti Semitisms that Europe produces are, you know, are nothing but kind of secularised and modernised up, up, updates of that, you know. I mean, the conspiracy myth, I think, can only be understood against that sort of backdrop of the kind of attempt, to, you know, all this sense of undermining Christian civilization. that are the, the products of, you know, in terms of the prehistory of any genocide, these are the products of as, as close to pure fantasy as you can get. Um, and I think, you know, that's always a, that is always a, always I think with this question, it's, it's kind of, you know, working out the the balance of specificity versus general patterns. I think with I mean, there are, and, 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 and in terms of the sort of general patterns, you could say, for instance, there are some very great similarities in in, in terms of the early modern and modern uh, experience of um, Jews in East and East Central Europe and in, in Central and parts of South Eastern Europe, and Armenians in the Ottoman Empire. You know, for reasons of certain commercial and um, you know economic situation, which are explicitly in by. You know, entirely sensible sort of historiographical, uh, historical, sociological reasons, and the sorts of stigmatizations that that come attached to those minorities from the greater populations, owing to you know certain concentrations of the minorities in particular sort of socio-economic functions. Um, But it's yeah, I think it's it's the nexus of that with 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 um, with modernisation and the the, the idea that social upheavals, cultural traumas and crises must have some, some, you know, someone to blame at the bottom of them. You know, easily stigmatizable, um representative so-called of, of, of broader impersonal social processes always tend to get it uh, in these situations. Um, you know, as the Ottoman Empire is, you know, is incorporated more fully in the world economy, Armenians were held to hold a sort of middleman function, disproportionate probably to their numbers. Uh, you know, maybe living in entrepôts, um, higher than average representation in commercial functions in the, in the, in the metropolitan capitals and so on. Again, uh, you know, uh, very easily stereotyped as being representatives of alien forces who are trying to take the, the levers of sovereign control out of the hands of majority populations in the states that somehow represent them. Um, and when you add onto that the you know the ethno-religious difference of these groups. You know, they're becoming you know, very, very clear. And then, and I think another thing which would, would, would um, bind together, say the Armenian and the Jewish experience would be to which um, great powers in the late 19th century set themselves in inverted commas to protect these minorities um, in countries where they are at risk, which a commitment which may in some cases have a, a humanitarian impulse Encouraging it, um, as well as all sorts of other impulses too, but which almost never results in actual proper protection and mainly issues in furthering the sense of the, of, the, of the states in question that those minorities are actually in hop or in league with or loyal to supranational forces, external forces, forces that are basically hostile to the, the nation in which they're living. Uh, and furthering that stereotype of... Uh, of otherness and disloyalty and is that, that the, the sense in which in the modern well at this time of sort of heightened sort of paranoia um sense of otherness is so often translated into a sense of you know of, of disloyalty as well as a simple otherness and um, um, in, in, in the Jewish case also we can talk you know sensible limited generalizations about the role of um, particularly Russian Jews in left wing, um, particularly far left politics for very again, very obviously explicable historical sociological reasons, creating a sort of stereotype of Jews as revolutionary subversives from within, the assassination of the Tsar, and um, you know, and their kind of you know all the stereotypes that grow up around that. These are embedded in a sort of history of perceiving Jews as being again, not just different, but subversive of the order. Um and, and, and I think you know, there are Jewish specificities and there are certain specificities that tie together the Armenian Jewish experience. And then there are broader um, patterns which tie both of those together with yet broader experiences of minorities in this new Europe, particularly the Europe that emerges after the First World War, which is, as we know, Europe uh, nominally of nation states. In fact, of anything but nation states, so Europe crammed full of 30 million or so um, national minority populations. uh all of whom are you know, held in a certain amount of suspicion by the titular um, peoples and the rulers of that state, partly because they're simply different, partly because they're seen as kind of um, a wedge, which great power kind of interferers have to, to meddle in their sovereign affairs and thus some basically unwelcome. But also in you know, a sense that the nation state is the way to go in terms of modern state organisation and these folk with their dubious loyalties, maybe their old established loyalties to the Habsburg Empire in some cases, um you know, the previous order, which the nationalists are so glad to get rid of. Maybe their loyalty to the Entente powers that promised them protections in the Versailles Treaty, you know, any sense, basically, that all manner of um, minorities just do not fit the current nation-state dispensation. Uh, And senses of otherness joining together very heavily with senses of um, subversiveness, external loyalties. Uh, potential subversion, or just basically grounds for irredentism of neighbouring states, where your minority happens to be the titular pe- people in the in the you know in the in the state next door. You know, interwar period is full of these attempts to sort of rev- thinking about revising national boundaries, talking about the protection of you know, you, you think about Transylvania, but also, you know, is the Sudetenland. You know, these issues of minorities in within one's own borders being problem at so many different levels and you know my thesis again not startling the original is that you know genocide and ethnic cleansing are in a sense one in inverted commas logical solution to to, to such um, self constituted uh, problems
0: and I know one, one, one of the, the, the things you point out quite clearly and quite well in the book is the extent to which the, the people who were active during World War II drew their some of their formative experiences partially from World War One but par- partially from the aftermath of World War I as all of these kind of entanglements as, as people try and understand what this new world is going to look like and, and and what minorities are going to be where and <coughs> excuse me to what degree you can solve some of these minority problems by legal means or by um, by treaty means or something else um and so it's in this environment that the Nazis arise and and you use the phrase the Nazi project." can you say something about what the Nazi project was
1: hmm. Yeah, um, good question so I suspect this may be, it's maybe uh, one of those times in which I've transgressed my own rules about not sort of essentializing things <laughs> of course there are lots and lots of uh, lots of aspects of the Nazi project i think in this specific case it's um uh in the, in this in these specific sets of contexts, um, well, there's there's a great deal that's already known about the you know the particular particularities of Nazi racism as somehow related to and somehow slightly different from other forms of European exclusionary ideology, um, and added let's say biological element, but which shouldn't detract or distract us too much, I think from or at least should be seen alongside established kind of Volkish kind of conceptions of, of otherness and cultural, you know, ethno-cult, yeah, let's, let's say, I mean, ethno-religious in some degree, of course, because what is no surprise that the prime enemies in the Nazi eyes are Jews, you know, and that kind of uh, the ethno-religiously inherited sense of, of, of Jews otherness, you know, is, is only really modernized and refracted rather than changed altogether by modern anti-Semitic uh, um, project, project, if you like. Um, I mean, I think one, one thing which I, I suppose my, my book tries to sort of portray the Nazis as in addition to all of the sort of fairly well-known, um, fairly well-known depictions of it in terms of its racial and um, spatial projects um, is to think of it as a great power in a, in a sort of you know, a new great power, certainly, but one, of course, has to obey some of the rules of great power dumb. Um you know, one which is quite happy to do, sort of take the lessons of other great power behaviour throughout the ages uh, and to apply them in new ways. And, um, you know, thinking about alliance policy, policy certainly about the the, um, the sticks and carrots it hands out to its <clears throat> alliance partners during the war, but also the way in which it's, uh, it plays on the minorities' question, not just in its own you know, not just in, in the territories in which it's seeking to expand, but you know, plays on much broader Eastern, and East, Central European kind of fears and minorities and the minority situation, particularly as regards Jews. Um, uh, and, and, and I suppose in the context of my book, we if we're thinking again, again uh, against the backdrop of the decline and um, – fall of the Ottoman Roman of the empires the Nazis would fit in in one way as um, a kind of new imperial power that sought to fill part of the space vacated part of the let's say geopolitical or the hmm, part of the power vacuum vacated by those powers or created by those powers rather, um, so you know you have the, you have the collapse of the Ottoman, Romanov, and Habsburg empires, the recreation in the Romanov space of a, a new Bolshevik empire, and the intrusion and, the, and the sort of reintrusion of that into some of the Eastern European spaces to which the, the Romanovs used to which the Romanovs used to occupy, and then the uh, pressing of the Nazis or Nazi Germany eastwards. Um, You know, at the same time as you have fascist Italy, effectively trying to fill some of the space vacated by the Ottoman Empire in North Africa and the eastern Mediterranean. You know, so a kind of modernised great power struggle, but where where unlike with the old European, -European, intra-European imperial power game, the land being sought is generally not, you know, once again outside Europe. Um, It is this time within Europe. Those are the lands of imperial conquest. The Nazi empire, if you like, is is clearly a new sort of empire with its um, very great emphasis on principles of racial hierarchy and racial ordering, and yet it inherits many of the precepts of um, of the Kaiserreich in terms of simply in terms of some of the spaces to which it's looking to expand, Uh, and some of the precepts of other empires too about population management, population control, divide and rule. you know, how you deal with what Jürgen Zimmerer has called a, you know, the twin question of race and space. Now, those are you know, some, some important imperial continuities there. But this, you know, the, one, one, when one's looking at those issues of imperial continuity, of course, one then has to return to some of the specificities of the Nazi project, which are um, not just in terms of the ideology, but also in terms of the organisation of the Germans, the way in which this, by that, at that time, hyper state introduces, you know, that sort of modernity isn't just manifesting in some of the racial ideologies um, and the eugenic ideologies. It's also manifest in the way the internal German state structure is set up, uh, a state structure that lends itself to a particular sort of radicalism uh, with, you know, fairly modern kind of organizational concept, concepts, like the Leistung's principle, the principle of kind of achievement, which manifests itself particularly in the SS and helps make the SS an especially effective Organization as well as an especially virulent organization, on this kind of this kind of free market, if you like, in uh, racial ideas and persecutory ideas, that that sort of fills the explanatory gap between the basic anti-Semitism and racism, expressed, expressed but you know, directionless expressed in, in Hitler's mind camp from the and the final solution in its final form. You know, that so much of that space is filled by the kind of developing cumulative unpleasantness of the of of the German institutional structures, if you like. And this is where I think that you know we do you know, we can actually gain some quite a lot from looking at some of the old functionist accounts of German the German state, albeit you know, with with proper attention paid to the the virulent ideology, which ultimately gives this overall direction, if not a precise destination.
0: Yeah could you say one of the things you do real well is is to explain the interactions between which which I think you call of the vanguard of people and organizations who push if not necessarily genocide at all times but push the radicalization of policy forward and and organizations which which tug against it for a variety of reasons. Could you say something about how this vanguard of people and organization arises? Which, with this kind of inherent interest in in radic- further radicalization, yeah. this, um,
1: this is a this is a very tricky one to encapsulate in any sort of.
0: I mean, it, 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 the difficulty I think
1: lies in, 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 in simply working out how much of this is, as it were, in any way envisaged or deliberate, and how yeah, much of it yeah. is just a sort of logical logical expression, as it were, of of a group of people. Yeah, the vanguard of people, many of whom, not all, but many of whom have, have imbibed. Um, uh, some of the ideas that go to form you know, that are in that milieu from which Nazism and, and other ideologies of the far right emerge in the interwar years. Certainly, you know, there is uh, an element of contingency in the Nazis get, getting to power. We can't deny that. And it's that element of contingency you know, once that has happened, um, and you know. The Nazis have consolidated their grip on power they are then free um, to insert um, like thinking personnel into the state structure and I suppose what they 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 certainly do that into the insert it into the orthodox state, state structure of the ministries of interior justice and, and the military and so on but they also create um, a series of parallel organizations across the state framework in which I think some of the most Extreme Nazi elements are found, and these sort of parallel, parallel organisations, whether it be in the office for the four-year plan, undergoing the SS itself as a sort of state within a state, um, and a, a sort of competitor on one hand with the police, and later on even with the military or the army itself. Um, uh, you know, a whole host of of Hitler's sort of Reichskommissars, these 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 characters who sort of helped kind of unify or, or orchestrate policy in a whole range of policy areas. One of their effects is to try is to effectively provide a very radical impulse, impetus that's new into the German state structure. You know, people by new, as it were, newly radical. You know, men of the, of the far radical right, um, who pull along in their slipstream, men of what we might think of as a sort of normal conservative right. Uh, many of whom are populating the established German organs of state. Uh, and there's a sort of strange dynamic of kind of mutual penetration there of ideas, of technologies, of, um, you know, with a basic consensus about what's good for Germany, i.e. revision of the Versailles terms on a number of territorial and military levels, um, uh, you know, some basic ideological consensus, enough, as it were, to, to give, uh, to, to, to bolster the legitimacy of the Nazi project. But nevertheless, this is something that is pulled along by the radicals. And, you know We can see that by the existence. If the Nazis didn't think it would have been necessary to have had these new organisations, they wouldn't have had them. So one can assume that they thought at least that these more radical vanguard organisations were necessary, sort of bolted onto the state framework, ultimately creating some sort of synergy or symbiosis with some of the ex- existing organs of the German state, encouraging them, too, to further radicalisation so that they don't lose their own prerogatives within this kind of new organisational Darwinism, if you like. Um, and, you know, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's, it's very obvious, particularly when the, you know, however, however radical and terrible things get in Nazi Germany itself in the 1930s, things get much, much worse as the Nazis expand into Eastern Europe. And it's partly because of the wartime context, because war, war does radicalise and you know, mm-hmm. the, these people full well realised before the war that war also provides opportunities for various projects. But also because as we expand into new territories, the sorts of people you can import to run those new territories um, are the sorts of people you've already imposed on the German state itself in these, uh, in these in the vanguard organisations. Except in these new territories, they don't really have to take much cognizance of established state frameworks. You know, they've got much more, much freer hands there. And in that sense, I would say that Nazism actually realises its, or expresses its own kind of potentials, um, its own nature, if you like,
0: much mm-hmm.
1: more fully, and realistically outside of Germany
0: yeah and so so you mentioned race and space a little bit ago what what were the nazi plans or intent toward east well toward europe as a whole and specifically toward eastern europe the, you
1: know, there, there is a, a there is a difference a big difference here between long term planning here and short term exigency and i think that um i, I, I in very simplistic terms, the ideal, the ideal long-term stratagem would have been a um, an Eastern Europe um, that provided um, agricultural commodities and natural resources of other sorts. I'm thinking maybe of the oil of the Caucasus, the wheat of the Ukraine, and so on and so forth. Uh, peopled with uh, you know a much thinned out local population to serve as slaves uh, for a, a much or more densely populated, um, urbanized, industrialized Germanic core of the empire, which of course includes Germany itself, and also the other territories it was seeking to incorporate and would have as kind of client states, whether it's been you know, Northern France, Belgium, Netherlands. You know, this this, this kind of an in, an industrial core, which actually also reflects much of Europe's you know own industrial development of the last of the previous five hundred years. Um, you know, all of this Nazi dominated and control in a, in a sort of autarkic design for a continent with, with, with Germany at its figurative center. So, but it's in the East, that the designs are most, um, are, are most catastrophic uh, in terms of their implications for, for the indigenous peoples. Um, these designs are, you know, clearly not fully carried out and in some cases not carried out at all because the empire is constructed solely at war and of course in the vision war is just a preface um, to the establishment of the, the long term empire with Germany's complete control of what you might call a sort of Eurasian core of maybe even the world you know that, that vast sort of Euro, you know, going up to the Urals from somewhere near the Mediterranean that sort of huge area and that, uh, you know that was the the, the distant plan, but the um, just you know because even though these ideas are uh, materialized the sort of radicalism uh, and racism upon which they're predicated does of course still play out in the context of war and in ways which are in many cases mu- not much less murderous, so you know in place of a kind of very um, coldly thought out design to reduce large swathes of the population of Eastern Europe by um, effectively deliberate starvation by the removal of basic foodstuffs for the supply of the kind of, you know, Germanic core of the new empire. We do nevertheless have lots of sort of discrete starvation designs that are put into practice, whether this be in specific military campaigns against Russian cities or in terms of the policies and pursued against, um, you know, Several million Soviet prisoners of war. The, 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 there is a link there between sort of pre war plans for the sort of privation, the deliberate privation of these areas, and the actual practice of the privation that's imposed upon specific categories of individuals and groups and, and, and places. Um, you know, even if just at the level of illustrating mindset, but certainly at the level of, you know, procuring food for Germany during the Reich, it's obvious which people should be the first to go without, and these are the people you consider to be inferior. Um, and it's, you know, inferiority in the Nazi system is a fairly finely graded thing. I mean, there's clearly a basic anti-Slavism, but within that, a um, a lot of gradations about better and worse Slavs, uh, you know, Slavs that are possibly Germanizable, um, Slavs that are more civilised than others, certainly Slavs that can be used to, you know, a bit of divide and rule against others. You know, yeah, so there's a huge differentiation of policy across place and time. Um but one of the basic results of, uh, of the occupation of Eastern Europe during wartime is, is, is the starvation of a very large number of people, particularly um, you know, about three million or so Soviet prisoners of war, who are quite simply left to, in many cases to starve to death. And uh, the sort of viciousness of those designs and some of the other requisite um, um, war-related um, procurement plans for which read vast economic theft you know, do lead to large-scale starvation and shortage and desperation amongst large tracts, particularly of the formerly Soviet populations. Um, Jews fit into this whole picture, in a, and again, in a way which has some similarities, but but also some very specific historically and ideologically inflected differences too. I mean, most obviously Jews are pursued throughout the continent, not just in Eastern Europe. I mean, that's Eastern Europe tends to be where they are taken to be killed if they're not already there and being killed there. And in that sense, you know, some of the spatial aspects of this design still kind of play out. Because, of course, you can, you kill them where, in a sense, where the sensibilities of the local people are smallest, where the outside world's attention can be least drawn. Um, but nevertheless, you know, there is a, a specificity to Nazi anti-Semitic ideology, which you which, which is just irreducible in the in the sense of seeing these Jews not, you know, as I mean, pursuing them everywhere where it's, you know, plausible to do so. Um, and out of the sense that they're not just inferior, which is, I suppose, the basic idea with Slavs, but but dangerous. I mean, perhaps not even inferior at all. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about Jews and the Nazi worldview is, you know, despite all the, um, perhaps it, perhaps because of all the metaphors, like bacillus infections, and so on. this is, you know, these are metaphors of danger, actually, rather than inferiority, and the subversive, the metaphors of subversion, revolution, world control. You know, at some perverse level, you could even say there's an admiration there. You know, built into the profound hatred and. Um, uh, so uh, you know, those are all different, and in a sense, also you know, I think, explicable according to longer-standing patterns of viewing Jews as to the conspiracy as would-be world controllers, and that you know that's that you know that is just different. I mean, where I whereas it where it dovetails with the rest of this is is in the sense that the radicalisation of Jewish policy that occurs in the space between um, the invasion of Poland in 39, the invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941, and developments in the invasion of the Soviet Union through autumn and winter 1941. Is is in precisely in that military context of occupation, radicalization, the war with the so-called Judeo-Bolshevik state of the Soviet Union that we get, um, you know, the progression to outright genocide from plans of you know, ethnic cleansing, mass expulsion. You know, it happens there and it happens then for a reason, and this is partly because if you're looking for a, through Nazi eyes for an instantiation of Jewish power in the world, the Soviet Union is is it. Um, and in that sense the attack on the slavic state and you know being the degenerate slavic state ruled by jews is you know is part of one and the same thing and that's a huge radicalizing factor in itself and then issues of you know to to what extent do we solve as it were the jewish question during the war to what what extent do we wait for after the war well these are also themselves contingent upon the course of the war itself and the possibilities opened up by invading the soviet union the the fundamentally different nature of the military conflict in the East. Um, these are all factors that liberate the most extreme Nazi fantasies in that military context, too. So, you know, clearly there's the, the context of war and the occupation of Eastern Europe is absolutely vital to understanding the radicalization of Jewish policy, even if it doesn't explain everything about the nature of, and peculiar qualities of Nazi anti-Semitism.
0: And, and as you go through this, you, you make an important distinction between intent and extent. Um, and, and in talking about intent, by which I take it to mean you, you to talk about the decision or decision-making process that leads to genocide, you're very clear that there is no decision. Uh, it Perhaps I'm pressing it too far, but you could even say there is no Holocaust. Rather, there's a series of decisions. There's a process and a, and a, and a, a, a widely varied set Of outcomes that are desired, uh, depending on where you're talking, who you're talking about, and when you're talking about. So, can you say just a little bit about how you understand that process to have occurred?
1: Yeah, this um, this again is a is 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 a um. I'm inclined to try and read from a script. I don't uh, (laughs) script, alas. So, (laughs) your listeners will have to indulge me as I ramble for a while. I'm the. The intent extent thing is—I mean, in a sense, it's not a very well phrased dichotomy. Um, I, I suppose it means intent versus extent of intent. <laughs> but um, yeah. the, the idea, fundamentally, there being that—if um, I—if I recall, it's a few years since I wrote this—that—that um, um, that there is that there is a certain set of dynamics that occur within places that are more or less directly controlled by Nazi power structures where the dynamics can get, could almost become self-reinforcing. Uh, and um, in areas particularly, I'm thinking here, Eastern Europe, but actually yeah. anywhere that's, I think directly ru- ruled by Nazi Germany. So which we might actually include the Netherlands. And I think this is one of the key factors explaining the very high, rate of, of, of death in the Jewish population of the Netherlands compared to say France is in the extent to which the Netherlands was, was actually scheduled a full incorporation into the Reich and then thus you know, no real concern was taken of kind of local attitudes the, the administration was much more heavily Germanized and put under much heavier German control um, and in that sense, it's almost sort of viewed as part, you know, as, a, as as one of the many of the occupied territories with a view to be fully and properly, completely incorporated into the Germanic core. That sort of Germanic core plus the Eastern European territories make up the vast majority of the German Empire. In those spaces, a slightly different dynamic o- operates, I think, by necessity of, of, of some ways, uh, that, that operates outside the confines of that empire, particularly when we're dealing with with allies whose you know, whose own attitudes to, to the Jewish question have to be taken into consideration and, who's, and who when you're dealing with them, you know, the matter of how much pressure you put on those allies is actually a matter of kind of wartime strategy as much as anything else because it's related to alliance politics, the solidity of the alliance. And those sorts of factors don't obviously apply at all within the German Empire, its core in the East. And um, and in those, in those situations, all the factors that lend themselves to radicalization of Jewish policy, by which I mean the course of the war, occupation, Food issues, economic issues, you know, what you do with a vast impoverished population that you've just shoved into ghettos. Um, um, you know, the idea that the East is the sort of seedbed of world Jewry, therefore especially dangerous, needs to be contained, needs to be quarantined, you know, as the seedbed not just of the Jewish race in the world as the, as the, as the talk goes, but you know, the seedbed of Bolshevism. You know, this whole sense that the you know the East East is a an area that has to be Treated with extra severity and, you know, extra, in any case have the extra license there, means that you get whole self, you know, in the context of war and occupation, the whole series of, 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 of legitimations and, you know, more than that, rationalizations for genocide become self-reinforcing. So the idea that, you know, you invade the Soviet Union, um, you have to deal with the so-called Judeo-Bolshevik threat. This legitimates expanding the killing of more and more Jewish men of Jewish, you know, of arms bearing age. You know, entirely spurious, obviously, but within the Nazi ideology, it sort of works. Then as the occupation lingers, you know, you need to feed your own troops more, you know, and Jews are forced into ghettos. They're either unproductive or, you know, or dying of disease as a result of conditions you've created. You know, what do we do with this imprisoned population? As the possibility of swift victory recedes, we're not going to be able to send them beyond the Urals or to... Madagascar, or wherever it was earlier speculated. You know, in a sense, this is a logistical problem viewed through ideological lenses. Um, The possibilities of the war have have opened all sorts of vistas of, in virtue of having reduced kind of moral sensibilities and you know up the ante the the existential stakes. Um, And all of these play out, uh, but uh, in in various ways. But they're they're ultimately all mutually reinforcing. What you might call the sort of inverted commas ideological security threat posed by Jews. The economic and public health issue posed by the existence of ghettos. You know, the idea of Jews in central Poland as kind of basically, you know, messing up what, you know, your, your, your future demographic designs for the, for the German empire in the East. Here's one way of clean, clearing out the most troublesome element. All of these push in the direction of ultimately of killing, you know, such that by the end of 1941, as a result, partly of a, a bunch of local initiatives across Poland and elsewhere, but mainly as a result of ideological consensus under these circumstances, we have designs for effectively killing Jews in ever larger numbers. In the first instance, killing Jews in Poland and the Soviet Union in order to sort of make way for Jews deported from particularly the Reich. Um, but then ultimately also the killing of Jews from the Reich and also the killing of Jews from anywhere else the Germans can get their hands on. That is all a sort of, you know, I mean, a, a cumulative process where the logics sort of dovetail relatively smoothly. Um you know, and, there is, and, and the ideological bottom line can always be pursued, and the bottom line keeps getting deeper, if you like, or whatever. The, you know. Now, that, that, that would, as it were, be my analysis, broadly speaking, of intent. Uh, mm-hmm. And the extent element, but, you know, in, in no way suggesting actually that the Nazis are not interested in killing Jews from outside, when they obviously are, it's a question of how far you can push this because the matter now is, is no longer what you might call the sort of tactical matters of, of the interplay of these different local rationalisations for murdering Jews that crop up in this wartime context, but they are more strategic considerations and they're also considerations which do not directly pertain to the future of the German Empire. I mean, one of the interesting things about thinking comparatively about genocide is, I mean, one of the things that renders peculiar, perhaps not absolutely peculiar, one. Situations where they had suggestions of genocide pushing beyond boundaries of you know, manifestly the extent to which this it developed in the um, in the in the German in the German cases is, is extreme. You know, the idea that, you know, most in in many cases of genocide, perhaps most they are they are perpetrated within sovereign boundaries. Just the development of that genocidal urge to encompass you know the whole of Europe, uh, insofar as we can, you know the documents suggest. Um, You know, it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable genocidal urge. And, you know, and, 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 you know, that is something that needs to be explained. Uh, I I, I mean, uh, uh, there are all sorts of counterfactuals that come into play here and one, you know, one can't, you know, one assumes that, you know, had the Nazis controlled the whole of Europe, they would have had no compunction at all about murdering all Jews everywhere. As it is, they don't. And there are certain issues of prioritisation which are related to alliance, politics, and so on and so forth. But one also must assume, by simple virtue of where the various Nazi officials are, the desire of individual Nazi officials to get their own area, as it were, Judenrein, clear of Jews, um, that plays into the process in a way which does have kind of local spatial rationales. So in a sense, to make that distinction between intent and extent, I'm talking about some of the basically kind of structural desiderata there about, you know, it just will be the case that that Jews under areas of particular German officials, you know, there's greater impetus to get them out because there's more interest locally in doing that. And then there's this other strategic factor there um, about alliance policy and the extent to which early in the war uh, and in the run up to war, you know, these states, which, you know, those states which ultimately become Nazi Germany's allies and kind of satellites are, very happy to go along with cranking up anti-Semitic rhetoric and policy, partly as a way of appealing to Nazi Germany, partly because they've got very significant anti-Semitic movements and anti-Semitic sentiments there. Partly because it's also very expeditious to do this because, you know, stealing from Jews is a very good way of building up national economies. You know, dispossessing minorities is built into the process of establishing national economy in these new, new central and eastern European states that have emerged after... Um, eighteen seventy eight and again after nineteen eighteen um, you know and, and, and I call this in the book a multiplier effect the way to which in the first instance there is a you know a sort of continental consensus towards anti-semitic policy and anti-semitic action on behalf of many states that a, follow their own national prerogatives but they ingratiate themselves with Nazi germany and, and, and their sort of anti-Semitism is enhanced as part of the anti-Semitism emanates from Germany and the and German diplomacy and stuff. As the war goes on, you know, some of, those, um, some of those drives are tempered from within some of Germany's allies, even the most obviously anti-Semitic and murderous of them, like Remain, you know, reels back somewhat on its own policies. You know, having, you know, being on its own account of the second largest murderer of Jews in Europe as a sort of independent state, you know, um, the Jews of Bessaraba, Bukovina, Transnistria, in 1941 and through 1942 um, draws back from the, the deportation or surrender to Germany of the majority of the Jewish populations of so-called old Romania, Moldovia, Blackia, for reasons, which are, you know, partly of Alliance politics, partly of sort of amour proper, the nature of the relationship with Hungary, the nature of, you know, what they feel is an exploitative relationship with Nazi Germany. Uh, and in that sense, you know, the, the, to return again to the intent extent thing that plays again into germany 's relationships with these states because you did do need them on your side in the war effort mm-hmm. you know, to what extent are you going to put pressure on these on these uh, countries well that 's a matter of a case by case strategy it 's no longer a matter of the almost sort of well, I think of as an almost kind of uh, self evolving process within the boundaries of the German Empire, where you know all the various rationales for murdering Jews kind of interplay and reinforce each other. That dynamic isn't in play always outside Germany, particularly in the second half of the war. There it was more a matter of what I call strategy than tactics, right, in terms of the expansion of killing. You know, and in some places obviously killing can be pursued more easily, in some in some cases it can't. I mean all this is to say is really that there is you know there are real politic aspects to mm. some of the aspects of the extension of the final solution. German sphere of direct control, which in a sense is radically you know, original. I suppose the way I elucidate it may have some claims to be. but
0: Yeah, and one of the implications of that, and and, and you say this, I think, in your book, is that should the Holocaust, or should should the war have ended in, in, in mid-1943, our memory of the Holocaust would have been very different than it than it is because of things like the, the that would have ended bef- the war would have ended before the deportation and execution of Hungarian Jews, for instance. Can you say a little bit about how how that difference in memory would have what what that different memory would have looked like?
1: Well, yeah, that's a very interesting question. I mean, I have wondered about this. I mean, I suppose the reason I, I state that is simply because the, the Hungarian deportations are monstrous and huge—you know, half a million people being shit in the space of a few months oh, several summer of 1944 um i mean that is obviously if you just took that if that was all that happened in the holocaust that would still be a major genocide in this, you know uh, that would be you know not much less than the Rwandan genocide right you know, mm-hmm. um, that would be you know uh, in european history this would be an absolutely enormous crime but compared to the rest of the Holocaust, it, it's it's well, it's I don't know what the statistics are precisely. You know, four hundred plus thousand murdered um out of well, the best part of six million, perhaps six point two million people. And in proportion to the Holocaust, my, my basic point is that it's it, it it's, it's far from the whole story, of course. And yet, so many of the, the abiding images of the Holocaust have been sub- supplied by. Uh, things like the the deportation and murder of the Hungarian Jews, in the sense of you know Auschwitz that sort of full capacity, you know the, the most modernised Auschwitz in terms of the extension of the railway track through the front of Birkenau, um, you know the, the sort of the, the the apex of as it were industrialised killing. All of those things are you know somehow related to to you know the, the, you know, the sort of Last-ditch determination, even when Germany is sort of clearly on its way to losing the war, of murdering a vast national community of Jews that aren't even directly under its control, aren't within its own imperial sphere. You know, all of the imagery and the practicality of this is incredibly powerful and rightly so. But it, is, it does also emphasize a particular aspect of the Holocaust, which isn't, if you looked at the demographics, of the majority of victims as in some way representative of of, of, the, of, of the faith most of those, you know, because most of the of the victims of the Holocaust are from um, the pre-war territories of Poland and the Soviet Union. And, and, and you know, I, I think well, in recent years, we've seen quite a lot of historiography that has as, re-emphasized the significance of, of for instance, shooting massacres in, in Poland and the Soviet Union as a sort of you know, just as important in terms of, well, quantitatively, and also somehow qualitatively, to understanding the, the final solution as the Mass murder in the extermination camps, but they, yeah, I, but it was. Uh, I think I was. So there's partly it's it's simple. Like partly it's an issue about general representation, also a sense of, you know, that, I think the the killings of of the Hungarian Jews are so public in that sense. You know, they're the most public, public part of the Holocaust in terms of the killing, uh, and that also adds greatly to, you know, one of the seeds of post-war awareness of the Holocaust. I think must lie in that too. Um, There's much else to the picture there. Uh, I'm just thinking, you know, absent that, you know, and there are clearly very contingent aspects to the deportation of the Hungarian Jew. Mm -hmm. Hungary's kind of wobbling in the alliance. Um, You know, Germany's greater fear of of defection. You know, uh, Germany's desire to sort of bolster its alliance policies, determination to go into the Hungary stop, and so on and so forth. And and, and because it was in some way contingent, you know, uh, uh, I, you know, I thought it worth kind of introducing that counterfactual. I mean, the problem with counterfactuals is they're all very well up to the point of suggesting the dangers when you elaborate on them and say, you know, okay, that's the difference. Then what? Mm-hmm. Um, then what beyond it? Of course, you know, uh, anyone's guess is as good as mine about that.
0: Yeah, I'm, I I don't know about in, in, in the UK, in the United States, and I'm reminded of this um Because of a number of teenagers I know that the two memoirs that people read are Elie Wiesel and Primo Levi, both of which are from Auschwitz, both of whom are deported relatively late in the war. And those two memoirs have done an enormous amount to shape the way Americans remember the war or remember the Holocaust. Um, and I, like I said, I don't know if that's true everywhere, but that's certainly true here. There's there's much more in this book we could talk about, but I've taken a lot of your time. Um, can I just ask you real quick um, a couple questions? One is, where does the study of the Holocaust go now? You've alluded to some of these intersections between the Holocaust and genocide studies. What is there to do now with studying the Holocaust?
1: Well, there's, there's certainly an awful lot which has to be done empirically on it, um, <laughs> You know, though, though, as it were, my own interests and, and trajectories are, are, are not of, of that sort. You know, these are very hugely important works to be done at the kind of local level in terms of, well, literally the fate of individual communities, dynamics of the Holocaust in different places. I mean, at the sort of more comparative level, uh, I would say that, you know, actually still some of those local questions are interesting. You know, the extent to which the Holocaust in various places is tied in with other policies of state building, uh, you know, Holly Casey's excellent book on, you know, the history of uh, Transylvania,
0: Mm-hmm.
1: During the war, you know, around the war is, is you know an yeah. exemplary illustration of this. is kind of Raz Siegel, working at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, his interest in Subcarpathian Ruths, you know, another of these contested border regions where Jews, in particular, uh, are victimized, but other groups are too because it's part of the nation-building project. Um, more broadly, I think that uh, I, you know, I hope that we see more work which doesn't isn't doesn't just replicate what I call the you know the apples, oranges, and bananas but does try and build things more into sort of the sorts of processual or interrelated, you know, the interrelation of cases. One thinks, for instance, of, you know, some books already have been written about the Great Lakes area in, in Africa and the more, mm-hmm. about, you know, the interrelations of different cases, you know, and the extent to which, you know, more than one case is a case that may ostensibly be separated by a bit of time and quite a lot of space may be, may be embedded in deeper kind of, processes or tra- trajectories of international history. And I think, you know, there's a lot to be said, a lot to come from international history too here, but that's in no way to kind of downplay the, the great significance of work that can be done at the local level, actually.
0: And so what are you doing now? What are you working on now?
1: I'm just, I'm trying to finish. Um, well, I've been trying to finish for a long time, so perhaps so. <laughs> so uh, a book on, um, or what will become a book? Let's call it a manuscript at the moment, for in the interests of... Um, <laughs> Actually, um, you know, historians and um, yeah, and the role of moral moral evaluation really in what in, in terms of hmm. you know, well, I just think more needs to be said about this, and uh, I, 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 I'm sceptical of the sort of, uh, uh, you know, of what I take to be still the abiding norm of, of historians not involved engaging in evaluation, Not least because I think most of us actually do. So it's a question of thinking more carefully about. It. <laughs> how we do it, what we do, and what purposes that serves. But generally, I, I think I'm ad- actually advocating a bit more moral engagement, which you might say comes from the genocide interest. But, but at the same time, I think, you know, some of the moral engagement, genocide, has been extremely fruitful. Some of it has also been moralistic in the in, in sense of, sort of moral outrage that actually obscures understanding. And, you know, as it's Story first and foremost, of course that's not the sort of thing I'm advocating, but never that I said you know I think one shouldn't throw out the baby of moral evaluation with the moral moralistic kind of um, name calling.
0: that sounds very interesting, and I hope once you're done and I know you'll finish um, that you'll be back on to uh talk about that book. But I want to say, thank you so much for all of your time. It's been fascinating. There's, um, uh, you and I know, but, and just for your listeners, there's much more to this book than we were able to talk about today, and I encourage you to go and read it and think about it. Um, and Donald, I just want to say thanks, um, and uh, best of luck.
1: very much indeed.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Donald Bloxham, author of the book The Final Solution, A Genocide. I hope you enjoyed the interview and that you'll return to listen to more interviews on the New Books and Genocide Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network.